0: In the dust you form Faith commanded And the mountain moves Fear is losing ground To our hope in you Unstoppable God Let your glory go on and on Impossible things in your name They shall be done So,
1: I guess uh, that's the way to get everybody in their seats before I preach is to play the video twice. So, uh, good morning, family. It's weird, my wife calls me doctor. I just got me. So, So, uh, man, it's good to be here with you guys. Um, Last week, Erica and I were in Minneapolis, Minnesota. um, And what we do is four times a year, so many of you guys know this, we have the opportunity to speak at marriage conferences uh, in different cities with Family Life's Weekend, to remember, Marriage Getaways. Uh, Last Saturday, or last weekend, there were some 970 people at the conference we were at in Minneapolis. It was just a real wonderful time. And when I was there, I I talk about you guys all the time. You need to understand this. Wherever I'm asked to speak somewhere, um, I bring greetings on behalf of the Brook, and I often tell stories about you guys. And I just want you to really understand something that's extremely important, because this is how I view it, and I want you guys to view it the same way is that when Erica and I serve elsewhere, um, we serve as an extension of you guys, okay? I I really want you to understand that. And so when we're absent from here, those several times a year when we go speak, um, I want you to know it's it's not like we're gone, though. It's like you're you're still with us in in a way, and the stories that God is doing through you and the lives that he's changing here are influencing people around the country, Okay, I need you to hear and understand that. Yeah, you can capture God for that. Um, Even even last weekend, I was telling the people at the conference of how what it looks like when the church locks arms in mission in a community. And people came up to us as we shared stories of of how God has used the baseball league and other aspects of what we've done here to rock people. And um, and it's you guys doing the work. I'm just telling them what you've done. And it's not always the things that Erica and I are doing. So. Be encouraged by that. People around the United States are hearing about what God is doing through you. And so be encouraged for sure. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about the book of Ruth and start, and, and, and introducing a new message series which we've titled the, titled the Flavor of Redemption. And the reason the word flavor comes to mind is that there are varieties of flavors that make something taste good. I'm not a food connoisseur. Any of you guys, any of you guys foodies here? All right. Foodies are a little weird to me, just to be honest, all right? We went out to dinner with some foodies last week, and I was eating something, and he's looking at me eat my food. And he's like, what does it taste like? I'm like, a burger. And he's like, but what kind of sauce was that? I was like, orange? I, you know, but like, was there like a, some pepper in there? I said, I think so. I'm like, it's just good, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm not jumping on every kind of flavor, but foodies have a way of doing that, right? They they, 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 they kind of know the different Flavors in a good meal. I just like eating the meal, okay? Um, This past Friday, uh, Kaziah and I went on a long overdue date. Uh, She and I, we went to a Thai restaurant. And my favorite Thai dish is a Penang curry. Um, The Penang curry's got a coconut milk in it. That's about all I could taste and know, but I love it, all right? And it always happens. Every time I get I get the same thing almost every time. When I get down to the last bite, like, I prepare for it. I, I emotionally prepare for it. I, I drink some water, I kind of like make sure I'm ready, and, I, and I, I put it in my mouth, and I just let it linger there for a little while, because I love the flavors. What I was learning is, uh, as I've studied and researched some, some things about the food palate, the, the, the palate on your tongues, is, is that there are several flavors that come together to make something taste well, and as we all know, too much of one of those flavors can make something taste horrible. You ever think about a dark chocolate? What makes dark chocolate Great. Well, it's got a bit of bitter and sweet to it. Um, Even with Penang curry, apparently there's too many greens in there, like the basil. It makes the Penang curry taste bitter. But if you add, you have an ample amount of coconut milk, a few pinches of of, of salt, and um, uh, browned onions in there, it just makes it a a great combination. And I'm still thinking about it, by the way. Um, (laughs) And so foods convey something important that we need a variety of flavors to really enjoy and really get the most out of our eating experience. You've heard of Hell's Kitchen. I've never watched the shows. I've seen clips of it. That guy seems really mean, right? And so when I think about Hell's Kitchen, we think of, of a guy who's tough and a guy who wants people to become better chefs and so forth. But when I think about flavors and I think about life, I think that God's got a kitchen. It's not Hell's Kitchen. It's actually God's kitchen. Because life has all these flavors in them we even use that like life is sweet right now usually what we're referring to is things are going well maybe your job is secure or you got a raise or the family's healthy or your friendships are really strong or whatever it is we say things that felt a little salty yesterday when you messed up on something when you feel like things are sour you're kind of like they kind of have that grimace on your face and then sometimes we experience bitter, don't we? Bitterness is like another level of, 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 of sour, isn't it? Bitterness often comes with grief. It comes with sorrow. It comes with disappointment. But all of these experiences are part of God's kitchen. In order for us to get the most of the experiences he wants us to, ultimately to cause us to enjoy him, to trust him, and to delight in him, think about this. God's got a flavor called redemption as well that comes and encounters us in the bitters of life. See, the bitter experiences of life don't necessarily mean we must become embittered toward life. You hear me? The bitter experiences of life don't necessarily mean that you have to become embittered toward life. We are all going to experience bitter experiences in life. All of us And if you haven't yet, they will come. Sorry to break the news to you. Usually they come with great loss, with great failure, unmet expectations. And these things bring a kind of bitterness. But then we've got a choice what to do with that bitterness. Will we become embittered toward life or will we then learn to trust in God? People say when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. But I like to say when the going gets tough, the trust gets going. It's a call to trust God in the bitter. God's got flavors for us. He's got a kitchen. And the book of Ruth in the Bible has got flavor, family. It's got some sabor. It's got got all the experiences of life that you and I go through, which is why even as I've been studying this book in preparation for this series, I've been saying, man, God, it's got a little of everything, but the ultimate climax of the book, I'm going to, spoiler alert here, is redemption. Because that's what helps us cling to God in the midst of the bitter. God is a God who redeems. But it's often... The, the, the product of the bitter, of the struggle. God has to redeem in order, in order for God to redeem something, there's something to be redeemed. And in that moment of needing redemption, there's struggle, isn't there? So I'd love for you to meet me in the book of Ruth, chapter one, in your Bibles. And would you stand up and join me as I read uh, this chapter? It's a longer chapter, but I'm gonna read the whole thing. I'm a firm believer in getting God's word in front of us. There is a a Bible in the chair in front of you there. The book of Ruth is like the seventh or eighth book into the Bible. Like most Sundays, I forgot to find the page number. So if anyone got the page number in the, in the, the chair Bible, what is it? 222. Thank you. If you don't own a Bible, man, please take the one in front of you that's in that chair, that blue one. If it's a different color, that's someone else's Bible. Don't take that one. But if there's a blue one, we'd love for you to have it. God is a God who speaks still today, and he does so primarily through his word. This is what it says here in Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years And both Malion and Kilion died, so that the the woman, that's Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return. Can you say the word return? Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt uh, dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return. He said, say return? return? Return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly what? Bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And And the women said, is this Naomi? returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Father God, we know that in these verses that we're about to unpack, there is rich truth that we know the Lord is going to cut us to the heart, but I pray also put us on a trajectory toward healing. My Father, I pray that you would meet us, whoever is here, tasting bitter like Naomi, whoever is here, God, with a determination for more, but not knowing where to go, God, may they rest in Jesus today. Spirit of God, meet us, Lord. Be lifted high, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated, fam. The story of Ruth uh, is a majestic story, but it's actually ultimately a story about God. It's about what God does in the lives of people. It's also a story of a legacy. This has been sticking out to me more and more the last few days. Because the story, as I mentioned earlier, is going to come to a climax in chapter 4. But the climax is ultimately something that, yes, Ruth and Naomi and a guy named Boaz, who will come on the scene next week, are going to experience. But the true, uh, the, the true depth, the true significance of that redemption is not something they will experience but the generations after them. It's a matter of legacy, what we do in the bitter. The story of Ruth is a beautiful book also because of the examples we find. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the books of the Old Testament are in a little bit of a different order than the books in our English Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. What's fascinating, though, the book of Proverbs ends in chapter 31, which is about who? a woman of virtue. Proverbs 31 talks about this woman of virtue and the qualities and characteristics of it. The book ends, and then we find the story of Ruth, who many say is kind of a commentary, an interpretation of the Proverbs 31 woman. So as we talk about the book of Ruth, to all my sisters out there, I want you to see an example of a woman who is a woman of great character, a woman who is great, of great courage, a woman who's a woman of conviction and strength. I know right now in our culture, Captain Marvel is hitting the hit the box office, and is giving a, a a depiction of a woman of courage and valor. But you must understand that she's preceded by many women in scriptures. Among them is Ruth, of a woman of courage and valor. And so as we see, Ruth, to my sisters out there, I pray you see a woman of great strength. We're also going to see a guy named Boaz. We're going to see his character. And for my single sisters out there, I want you to see a man that is a man that you you ought to pray for if you desire marriage. The kind of man who you say, that that guy is is a guy of character. To my fellas out there, we're going to see Boaz later on in this series. We're going to see a man of integrity. A man who has great power, but a man who never uses it in wrong ways. The kind of man we want to be, fellas. And to my single brothers out there, you're going to see Ruth, a woman of virtue. The kind of woman, if you were to marry, that you ought to pursue. We're going to see integrity at work, church family, for all of us. We're going to see God work in the most difficult situations to redeem them. The kind of experiences and flavors that we find. So you guys ready to jump in with me here? You're like, man, you're just starting the sermon now? That was a 10-minute intro. That's all right. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the days that the judges ruled in Israel. In fact, literally in the Hebrews, in the days that the judges judged in Israel. Now I'm going to give you a brief history lesson here to give you some context. What were the days like when the judges judged in Israel? Israel. Well, the book in our Bibles that precedes Ruth is the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a book that's bad. It's a bad book. All right, it starts out good. It starts out with this great leader named Joshua who brought God's people into a promised land. But then we have this condemning statement at the end, at the end of chapter 1 the chapter 2 that after Joshua died, there arose another generation and then another one who did not know the Lord. And it sets the book of Judges in a trajectory. In fact, we hear this common refrain that uh, it, says, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshiped the Baals. That's like idols, golden calves, that kind of thing. And so you're like, how did God's people go from this great trust in God to worshiping Baals? And the answer is one generation. Drop the ball. And then what we see in the book of Judges is God, people worship the Baals, and God's like, all right, if you're going to serve other idols, I'm going to withdraw my hand of protection. And what happens then is these foreign armies come in, they invade them, and the people of God are like, God, we're sorry, we sinned, please deliver us. And God sends these people called judges. Some of the judges are very popular, like a guy named Samson. He was a judge, and he rescued Israel. He had supernatural kind of strength that was attached to his long hair, but ultimately his hair was strong because of God. But we know Samson was a guy with shaky character, just like all, most of the judges were. But we see this common thing. God's people rebel. They, they get uh, foreign armies to conquer them. They cry out to God for help. He sends a judge to deliver them, whether it be Samson, Gideon, Deborah, whoever it is. God delivers his people. They have peace for a season, and then they spiral back out of control. Is this horrible cycle, some real wickedness, and the book of judges ends with this statement in those days, there was no king in Israel. everyone did what was right in his own eyes that 's the statement. so in the days when the judges ruled in Israel is when the book of Ruth takes place in the middle of the hot mess of a nation, God drops in the middle of it a story of Redemption. In the middle of the nation's unfaithfulness, we find a faithful woman and a faithful man. Family, we live in a nation that is a hot mess right now. We we can't ignore this truth. This is totally a side comment, by the way. But our nation is a wreck right now. Spiritually, it is a mess socially, it is a mess politically, financially, The God that we serve is not honored in our nation. And we know that. Like, I'm not panicking. I'm just telling you, we've got to open our eyes and see that. Political parties are at war, God doesn't represent either of them. And so in the brokenness of our nation, people turning away from the faith, there is a hot mess. But God knows how to drop redemption in the mess. Yeah, you can clap to God for that one. You you see, the book of Judges is a mess and in the middle of it we find Ruth, we find Boaz, we find redemption, the flavor of redemption. So as we look at our own lives and say, all right, God, you can do something because you did it here. In the days that the judges ruled in Israel, there was a famine in the land. The famine was often attached to God's hand of discipline because his people turned away. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy says, when you turn away from me, I'm going to send things like a famine. And what you need to do in order for that famine to go is to repent, to turn away from your sin and turn back to God. But as we see as the book of Ruth opens, Elimelech takes his family, and rather than calling his family to repent, he leaves the land where the famine was. He actually runs away from God's judgment into a land called Moab. He brings his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malion and Kilion. And as the story quickly unfolds, we find Elimelech dies, and then his sons get married, and then his sons die. Like, we're introduced to these uh, these six characters, the, the, the two sons, Uh, Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and her two sons' daughters, Orpah and Ruth, were introduced to them like, like right away, and then like half of them die in five verses. And you come quickly to understand that this story is not about Elimelech, Malion, or Kilion, or even Orpah for that matter, but Naomi, Ruth, and another to come. But what we see is Elimelech, turns away from Bethlehem, God's people, because of the famine, and goes into a foreign land. Many people believe that the book of Ruth is an illustration of what God's people have done toward God. When God's judgment has come, a disciplinary hand calling them to turn back to him, instead of returning, they run. And the book of Ruth demonstrates how Elimelech runs, just as God's people often run when God's like, no, don't run come back just as quickly as we introduce these characters they're removed they're removed extremely quickly and then we see there in verse 6 that Naomi rises up with her daughters and she says alright I heard that God has visited his people that's to say that the famine is no longer there I'm going to go back to Israel and then she tells her daughters-in-law to not go with her. Look at verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. What Naomi is saying is like, Hey, Orpah, Ruth, after your husband's died, you've done really well to me. You cared for me, your mother-in-law. You've, you've helped provide for me. But I'm going back, and you know what? You need to stay and go with your family is what she says to them. She says, go and return each of you, in verse 8, to her mother's house. Now, I was reading that, that phrase caught my, my, my eye because typically scripture refers to returning back to your father's house, not your mother's house. And so if you do kind of a study on that phrase, mother's house, you come to realize that usually when speaking of the marriage bed or, or a marital intimacy, it's referred to as a mother's house. And in many ways, what Naomi is saying here, daughters-in-law, you've got my blessing to not just go back to your father's home, but even your, quote, mother's home. I'm releasing you of your obligations to serve me, your mother-in-law, so that you can go remarry, start a new life, and we're done. You, you don't, you're no longer responsible for me. And you can, you can go without feeling any guilt or shame That's what Naomi's doing. Here. And that's a really sweet thing to do here. But her daughters-in-law, refuse this. In verse 10, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi says, turn back my daughters-in-law. In verse 12 again, turn back my daughters and my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. What she's basically doing here, there was a cultural practice that when if someone, if a married couple, if the husband dies prematurely, it was a responsibility of the next of kin to raise up a family through the through the for the deceased husband. Now that's a very cultural practice, of course, right? But that was the responsibility. And what Naomi's basically saying here: I ain't got no more kids, Ruth, Orpah. I got no more sons, and no one is left here for you to marry and to have children with. Uh, there's nothing here. And even if she's like, basically, even if I get married today, which is impossible, but even if I did and got pregnant tonight, would you wait for my child to be of age, to marry? Like, she's like, there's no hope here. Go. But what she says to them, which I find extremely interesting, is in verse 13, My daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi feels this sense of bitterness in her life. You, we understand it, right? She just lost her husband and her two sons in a 10-year window. She's experiencing real grief. And we're not even given a huge window into this. But you and I have experienced grief, and some of us have experienced it in deeper levels. So we're like, hey, I know exceedingly bitter feelings. But Naomi's like, but don't, don't come with me. We see in verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah finally says, okay, I'm out. She kisses her goodbye and goes back home. But then we're told in verse 14, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth held on. And so now the story that started out with six characters down to two, Naomi and Ruth. And then what Naomi tells her, see, your sister-in-law, in verse 15, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. I read this, and it bothered me. Because I'm like, all right, by the way, Naomi, this is now the fourth time you've told her to get out of here. All right? How many times does she need to tell you no before you let her, go, let her stay? But then she says, go back to your people and to your gods. Made me wonder, like, what's, what's going on in Naomi here? If you recall, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, was a time of marked unfaithfulness to God, kind of like a cultural belief in God that had no substantive discipleship attached to it. Sound familiar? It, it was a time when people would say, "Yeah, I believe in the Lord. I believe in Yahweh," but it's just kind of like because everyone else does. Much like in our own country, I believe in God, or maybe somebody even say I believe in Jesus because everyone else does, but it has no real bearing in her life. And I wonder how much Naomi was caught up in that same kind of belief, where she would even tell Ruth to go back to her gods, but in Ruth's gods and her family heritage was a god, it was an idol. Gods who can't speak, gods who can't redeem, gods who can't give life, gods who can't bring forgiveness. Why would she want her to go back to a god that can't help her? But that's what Naomi tells her to do, and Ruth puts her foot down. And she says, don't urge me to do this. And then she gives this great statement. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And then Naomi basically, okay, I know you are for real. And she lets her be. We're given a window, though, here, not only to Naomi's faith, but into Ruth's. Ruth grew up in a pagan land. She didn't know the real God until she married into a family that worshiped Yahweh. And Ruth must have come to this understanding. Even though as imperfect as Naomi's example probably was, Ruth came to the understanding that this is the true God and any life apart from him is a life I want nothing to do with. And so that means following an imperfect mother-in-law who was bitter. That sound exciting to you? Ruth is persistent in loving her bitter mother-in-law. And all God's people say, right? Amen. (laughs) Sometimes that can happen in relationships. And not just in-law relationships, but any kind of friendship. When we have people in our lives who have experienced true grief and then leads into bitterness, it's difficult to be around that. But Ruth says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to persist in being around you, Naomi. Naomi. Yes, because I love you, and also because of your God. I'm not going anywhere. I love Ruth's example here. Family, when we separate from God, we're making ourselves vulnerable. When we allow our, our adversities, our grief to cause us not just experience bitter grief, to become embittered, though, toward God, we keep God at arm's length, and then we start walking in a dangerous place. We start running away from God like Elimelech did with his family rather than returning to God. Ruth doesn't do that. She's got a kind of calculated courage about her, a sort of stubborn resolve to not go anywhere other than where God was going to be. And I pray that God would cultivate in each of us, men and women alike, that kind of, co- that kind of courage and stubborn resolve to follow our God no matter what our life is going through. So Naomi finally raises her wife, Eli, and said, fine, Ruth, come along with me. And she goes back to Bethlehem, which, by the way, means house of bread. And there was no bread, which is what got them out of there initially. And when they arrive, it says in verse 19, the whole town was stirred up because of them. Now just picture this. Last they remember, 10 years ago, Naomi is leaving with Elimelech and their two sons, Malion and Kilion. And now Naomi's on her way back with this woman that nobody knew, missing her sons. The whole town is stirred up, and they're just kind of like, what is going on here? And they said in verse 19, is this Naomi? And then verse 20, Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant in Hebrew. Maybe we'd say sweet. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me mara you want to guess what the word mara means bitter she says for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me so now we're seeing something here in naomi's heart she has some actually good theology with wrong application here family naomi understands a truth that you and i must understand is that God is a sovereign God who is providentially in control over and sovereign over all things. Naomi's acknowledging this right here. She says the Almighty has dealt this way with But in her suffering, she sees God as sovereign, but she doesn't seem to see him as good anymore. And so when we come to adversity and grief in life that brings bitter taste to our tongue, We have an option to see God as good or resent God as guilty. We can look at God as the one who's going to see us through it or be angry at God for bringing us in it. And what Naomi is doing is she's got the right understanding God's in control, but she's basically turning resentful toward God here. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And then she says in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And I'm picturing Ruth on the side like, man, what am I, chopped liver? But that's not Naomi. She can't even see the fact that she's got a devoted daughter-in-law who's refusing to leave her side and walk with her in her bitterness. She's like, I don't even see that. I'm empty. I got nothing here. God has been harsh to me. He's been. he's, He's made me bitter. I mean, I want us at the brook to be a kind of people who have a big theology of God and also a right application of that theology. I want us to be a people family that sees our God as so grand, so so providentially in control of everything, and even though we can't necessarily make sense of how that works, because you know what? There's evil in our world, isn't there? And we know that God's in control. And so we're like, God, how does that work? God, we know that you are not responsible for evil because you can't be tempted by evil, James 1 tells us. So, but we know you're in control and that evil happens. How do we reconcile that, God? You ever ask that question? I want us to have a theology that's so big that says, I know these things to be true. And even though in my greatest of wrestlings, I can't quite figure that out. I know that the problem here is not God, but my finite mind. And so what I'm going to do is choose to trust when life is bitter. I'm going to choose to trust when things don't make sense. I'm going to say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I know the Bible tells me you're good. I've tasted of your goodness, and though right now it's bitter, I'm still believing you're good. Sally, this isn't where Naomi's at. She's just like, I'm just empty. When Erica and I were in Israel, we were supposed to go on a trip to a mountain called Mount Bental. And the day we were supposed to go, um, it, was, it was a cloudy day, extremely foggy, which was extremely disappointing because I had seen pictures of Mount Bental and the panoramic view from that mountain. And our tour guide had to break the news to us. He's like, guys, I'm sorry, but it's too cloudy out there. It's too foggy. And even if we got to the top of the mountain, there's just nothing to see. And so what he ended up doing was taking us somewhere else and giving us another experience. But as I thought about that, the scenery actually never changed, did it? What, What was out there didn't move even an inch. The panoramic view was still there. The mountains were still there and glorious. But what was was the fog of the day would would inhibit our vision of the beauty. And that's what happens so often with God. God doesn't change. He's always beautiful. He's always glorious. He's always good. But sometimes our circumstance fog our vision. And rather than trusting that the vision is still out there, we just come down from the mountain and say, God, I'm done with you. This is what God wants us to do, fam. It's to get up on that mountain in the midst of the fog and the bitterness. And say, Lord, I know you're there still. I know you're there, and you're not going anywhere. We each have a choice here. It's either, God, I know you're in control, so I will trust you, or, God, I know you're in control, so I will resent you pray you take the former. I'll trust you. Naomi says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Verse 22, so Naomi, what? Returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, I told you that many interpreters believe the book of Ruth is a commentary also on what's happening in in culture. When God's hand of discipline was on them, calling them to come back to God, they instead fled from God into other places. The word return, as I've been drawing your attention to it, shows up 12 times in this chapter alone. 12 times. What's remarkable, it's the same Hebrew word that the prophets use when they look at God's people and say, return to the Lord. What the book of Ruth is doing, family, is calling you and me. When we feel God's hand of discipline or we're just experiencing the bitterness of life that comes from a broken world, God is saying, don't run away, but return to me. Return to me. What will you do with that? What will you do with that? Also, as I look at the book of Ruth and look at this chapter, there's another one who would sojourn in a land that was not their home. There was one who left home to sojourn in a foreign place, but not because of rebellion, but to save the rebellious. And that one is named Jesus. He's one who would taste the bitterness of death like Naomi tasted. One who would taste the bitterness of experience in life. And though he would walk in this foreign land, in the bitterness of life, he would also go to a cross so that we, the ones who are broken and in need of forgiveness, can be forgiven through Jesus. He would be the God who brings redemption in the sojourning so that as we wander about, we can find hope and forgiveness and redemption in Jesus. So family, will you return to the one who went to the cross for you? Will you keep pounding at the throne room of grace, saying, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to hold fast to you. Trusting God that in your kitchen, you've got a purpose for all the flavor. Maybe today you're tasting bitter. Maybe you've once tasted sweet. And you wish you had a whole lot more of that right now than the bitter. But as I learned with the Penang curry, the bitterness was necessary in my experience of enjoying the meal. And in many ways, the bitterness is part of life that's necessary in order for us to trust God more to hold on to him when the storm is raging on. If there's no storm, why do we ever have to hold on? So in God's kitchen, he's got the sour, the savory, the salty, the sweet, and the bitter. And he's saying, trust me, delight in me, hold on to me, knowing that I'm in control. The vision has never changed. And though it's cloudy, just know I'm still there. Some of you need to hear that today. Your God is still there. He hasn't left you. He hasn't moved an inch. And he's just saying, come to me, return. Trust me. I pray you would do that, family. There's a flavor called redemption. And as this story unfolds, we're going to taste more and more of it and see that the bitter was necessary for the beauty to come. Will you trust God with me in this, man? As we come to him pray together. God, I know that my my brothers and my sisters here in this room uh, are facing an array of flavors, God. And Lord, I I, I pray, God, that the words of Ruth 1 today would resonate in their hearts. That even as they see a, a progression in this story, that's leading towards something of, of, of significance. And even though, though for those who are unfamiliar with the story, they can't even see where the story is going, but they know it's going somewhere. God, I pray that they don't even remember that their lives are in the same way. That God, we can't often see where our lives are going, but we know there's a God who directs them. So I pray that, that these men and women that our youth in this room would hold on to you, God. Maybe they tasted the sting of death in their family recently, Lord. Maybe they've, they've experienced the bitterness of betrayal. The bitterness of, of unmet expectations, of their own personal failures, of, of wounds and hurts and memories. God, I pray that you'd meet them in this place. That, God, that they would follow you to the top of that mountain and say, Lord, I know you're still there. God, I ask, God, that you'd meet us here in this place. Forgive us, God, for when we've packed bags, spiritually speaking, like Elimelech. And ran away from your hand instead of saying, God, I'm coming to you. Church family, maybe today you're just sensing God calling you to repent. You gotta return. You've ran away from God instead of running to him, and he's reminding you that right now, and he's saying, Come back to me. Man, would you just take a moment, even as you're praying, just saying, God, forgive me. God, I'm so sorry and when you've been trying to get my attention, I've been running away. Forgive me, Lord. I'm coming back to you. Church family, maybe there's someone here who's never returned to Jesus, but your whole life has been spent sojourning, wandering about, trying to find answers to life that have never satisfied. Please know that there is a God who will satisfy your deepest longing which is ultimately forgiveness and a relationship with him we invite you to come to him today to say God forgive me for my sins I trust in Jesus who died to pay the penalty that I deserve and rose from the dead family maybe God's putting someone on your heart right now that you need to pray for it. you know that they're just so far away would you just voice their name before God in your heart God to hunt them down, chase them down. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do this work, that we would not grow numb to you, Lord, and we would keep listening intently, God, because you are always talking to us, and may we hear you and respond however you want us to do. Pray this in Jesus'
0: name. Amen. let's stand up as we sing this closing song, family. Thirteen, team, would you please come